My guest today is Peter Mendelssohn, author and creative director at The Atlantic, where he's heading up a redesign of the magazine. Peter is the former associate art director of Alfred A. Knopf, where he designed hundreds of book jackets, including Stieg Larsson's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Kafka's Metamorphosis, and Tolstoy's War and Peace. Peter is the author of four books, What We See When We Read, a book exploring how we visualize images from reading works of literature, Cover, a compilation of some of his book jacket designs combined with his reflections on designing these covers, Same Same, a novel published this past winter, and a forthcoming nonfiction work, The Look of the Book. Peter also teaches classes on literature and art at Harvard University. He has been described by the New York Times as one of the top designers at work today, and his work has been described by the Wall Street Journal as the most instantly recognizable and iconic in contemporary fiction. Peter, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Susan. Peter, I'd love to start by asking you about one of your first books, What We See When We Read. It's essentially an inquiry into how we process text, specifically novels, and how we use visualizations to make meaning of and comprehend what it is that we're reading. So What We See When We Read was a book that I wrote to try to parse and unpack what the process of visualization is for me when I'm reading a book. You know, as this is something that in those 15 years that I was in-house at Knopf, this was something I was doing every day. I would get a manuscript from an author, whoever it was, for a work of fiction or nonfiction. And then my job was really to transmute those words into visual signifiers. The idea behind the book was not to say in any definitive way how language turns into imagery in our visualizing minds, but more to kind of break down a little bit the metaphors that we use to describe what we see when we read, which were all these kind of traditionally very filmic metaphors mm -hmm. that, you know, we have this sort of tacit sense that when we're reading, it's, it's almost like there's a little gal or guy sitting in our heads in a little darkened theater, and we're sort of watching this film unfold, where in fact, what happens with me in any case, and again, I can't necessarily generalize, but I would imagine for most people what happens is your, the characters as they appear to you in a work of fiction in your imagination sort of come in kind of piecemeal. You're not really visualizing them, first of all, as much as you may imagine you are, but also that there's a lot of elision and there's a lot of gaps and that even those visualizations, when they're strong, they change over a reading as you're given new information about a character. The generally speaking, a character, when they arrive on the page, is doing something before you know who they are and what they look like. So anyway, all of these sort of questions of, you know, how these optics, as it were, kind of unfold over time became, you know, interesting to me. And I wish that I knew more about neuroscience and could understand a little more about you know, I did a fair amount of reading on sort of the theory of, you know, reader response theory and this kind of stuff and read a little bit about optical tracking and, you know, uh -huh. how the, how the eye saccades and how this works. And, but mostly it was just anecdotal talking to people about their experiences with books they loved and how they visualized characters and scenes. And, you know, just the more I investigated it, the more confusing and kind of wonderful the process seemed. 
Right. And in the book, you talk about how different media, such as films, Mm. TV, and even video games, have shaped the way that you and perhaps we as readers take on a perspective when reading. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about that? And I know that you are not inclined to mix media necessarily, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I think that's a really interesting point that you made about how media influences perhaps, or perhaps influences the way we read and the perspectives that we take. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's maybe prior even to discussing that, it's important to note that these things are changing culturally, but most of the communication that we seem to do right now, and I'm guessing even more so into the future, is visual whether it's, you know, SMS or, you know, Instagram or emojis, or we seem to have really settled on the visual channel as sort of a primary means of communication. I mean, we don't really, I had a phone call last night from a friend of mine, you know, my cell rang and I picked it up and I said, hello. And he's my friend whose name is also Peter said, hi, it's Peter. And I said, hi, how are you? And he's like, fine. And there was this sort of awkward pause. And he said, oh, I guess people don't really do this anymore, do they? I was just calling to see how you're doing. And I said, oh, I'm I'm fine. And then we had this half an hour long conversation. But it, you know, it was like, welcome to the Mm -hmm. 90s. It was so bizarre. My point being that, you know, our primary means of communication Mm -hmm. now is visual. And that and those visuals are just given, right? Like we see that frowny face, or we see that, you know, that video, or we see that text and with you know with especially with fiction you know the imagination is a subsidiary step you know you have your your sort of semantic channel and then you have this other channel that is co-created between you and the person that constructed the text right you're imagining all of this stuff and i feel like as time goes on i mean this also this is what people talked about at the inception of television as well that somehow our imaginations would become impoverished and i don't want to seem like some sort of get off my lawn luddite or anything but i think in fact our imaginations are becoming <laughs> impoverished sadly but you know i was i'm very interested in how reading, again, fiction, what's special about that experience is the lack of overt agency on the face of it that you're given as a reader. You can't, you're not really making choices overtly. You're sort of asked to be pulled along in the author's world and the author tells you what happens. But in fact, you know, as opposed to video games where in fact you have all this agency, you can shoot whom you like, you can look where you'd like. But in fact, in fiction, there is all of this agency. It just happens sort of sub rosa. It happens under the surface. And that's what we see when we read is really about is that kind of agency that you have as a reader to imagine what you'd like yes. and how that functions, how you conflate memory and and imagination. Right. And that's what you talk about in co-creating, correct? Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. And If you can give us an example, you mentioned how in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, which Mm -hmm. was one of the sort of experiences you had talking to a friend about the space Mm -hmm. and how that inspired you in part to write this book and how your friend, I believe, wanted to look up the actual space. Yeah, and that's right. you said, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this brings film in too, yeah. in the sense that, you know, I, I always feel like if you're, you know, if you watch a, a film adaptation of a book that there's always the danger that those visuals that that director, that production team has put together, those actors will colonize your own imagination and you'll never be mm-hmm. able to actually do that co-creation after seeing it. You know, I have this very specific, if a little bit inchoate vision of this lighthouse in my own head. And I didn't want that replaced 
in the way in which Daniel Radcliffe has become Harry Potter or, you know, Kira Knightley has become Anna Karenina or, you know, because again, these are the, these are the reasons I read. The reasons mm -hmm. I read are to do this kind of unconscious world building. From what you said, there are two things that come to mind. One is you mentioned Harry Potter and there are many people who say after seeing the film, well, first having read the book and then seeing the film, say, oh my goodness, the space, the people, they're exactly what I had imagined right. when I was reading. And is that in any way related to what you talked about where with other forms of media, certain images are handed to you? So mm -hmm. we have limited background knowledge that we can go back to when we co-create or when we start to make these inferences on what does, you know, the page on this spell book look like or how does Hermione sort of toss her hair when mm -hmm. she's about to cast a particular spell on someone. Right. Mm -hmm. I find that, you know, it's funny I brought up Daniel Radcliffe because in fact, I think the movies do a pretty good job at, you know, cleaving pretty close to the way I imagined things. Of course, what happens is there is this kind of brute force that thing that happens when you see something realized that, like I said, it does start to colonize your own imagination. In retrospect, then you start to, of course, you start to think, well, this is how I imagined it. Yeah, this is exactly right. But, you know, I had an interesting experience even a couple of days ago. I have a friend, Brian Selznick, who makes novels. Hugo Cabret was one of his books that have been made into films, and he himself makes these novels that include drawings in them. Anyway, I saw recently that he had just done a new set of covers for the Harry Potter series for Scholastic, and he illustrated a whole new cast of characters. And I was looking at them, and once again, I thought, yeah, this is this is right. This is exactly what they looked like. Of course, they look nothing like Daniel Radcliffe and whoever the person that plays Hermione is. I can't remember her name. But I guess my point is that when you see something actualized, it's just, like I said, the facticity of it is so unavoidable that it it really begins to force a kind of rightness mm -hmm. that it's it's very hard to challenge. So, I mean, I think there's like real danger there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a little more judicious now about, you know, what I will see on screen if if it's a, you know, if it's a actualization of a book I really care about, I, I tend to try to avoid it. The other thing that I wanted to get into, as you said, you've read some neuroscience, but have you read any cognitive psych? No. Because what you say is spot on with a lot of researchers in the field. Oh, and excellent. so there is... <laughs> <laughs> Could have gone the other way. <laughs> in cognitive science and psychology and the learning sciences, there's what something called the situation model. And in the situation model, basically successful reading comprehension depends on the construction of a coherent, meaning-based mental representation hmm. of a situation described in text. Mm -hmm. And so that's pretty much what you talk about in your book where... That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think, yeah. you know, the word model, I mm -hmm. think, is super interesting because one of, one of the things that, you know, has always kind of fascinated me is the way in which, again, if you reject the film model of the reading imagination, what you end up starting to notice is that a lot of what the imagination is, is a sort of manipulation of symbols and signifiers. I mean, I guess that seems rather obvious, but, you know, when we're thinking of, again, Anna Karenina, when we're thinking of her as a fully fleshed out, imagined being sort of moving around a fully fleshed out 19th century Russian world, 
it seems absurd to think that Anna might just be a kind of almost like in symbolic logic, a kind of placeholder in your mind for something. And the more you sort of interrogate in a way that reading imagination, the more you see that you are in fact model building. You know, sometimes it's like making a map. Sometimes it is like symbolic logic, I think, in constructing sort of a set of rules. But I think what it's not is that fully fleshed out sort of version that I was saying is sort of like the standard metaphorical model. But that, yeah, I'm very, I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. But yeah, again, when, when I read now, both for pleasure and for work, I have to try very hard to not pay attention to my own mind making things as I'm mm -hmm. reading, because that's the best way to subvert the pleasure of the actual experience. Of course, I had to do that to write that particular book. But And how did you do that? It's really hard. I mean, I think I say in the book, there's a William James quote that it's like turning up the gas to see what the darkness looks like. It's very hard to introspect on your own introspection. It's just like a, a long-standing philosophical conundrum. But it is really tricky. And again, I don't claim any special knowledge not even to my own process, which is why a lot of the book is made up of questions that remain unanswered. You know, I really don't have any answers except to say that I think that reading, like anything in any process in life, is more mysterious than we give it credit for being. So that's really the only kind of surety that I walk away from this with. I mean, strangely, I'm now, having wrapped up this novel, I've you know, I've had this experience from a slightly different vantage point, which is, you know, the vantage of really trying to concertedly build these worlds and hoping that the reader will see to some extent what I'm seeing, mm -hmm. which is a, a very different sort of view on the whole thing. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm starting to realize the way in the ways in which you can't obviously control what a reader is going to see, but you can hem in those possibilities to some extent, that there are ways to sort of limit and corral a reader's imagination. So, you know, I see this novel as very much a kind of companion piece to what we see when we read, sort of a what I saw when I wrote kind of book. That's such an interesting point about the corralling of a reader's imagination. And one of the reasons I was so excited to have you as a guest is that, as you know, this podcast is about media, media effects and education and the interplay between the two. If you were to think about novels as print media, one of the oldest forms of media we have today, and what you said about visualization while reading, I wonder how you would approach utilizing visualizations as a strategy to help students in reading comprehension. I've mentioned the nation's report card in previous interviews, and this report card gives us a snapshot of student achievement in various subjects. In the subject of reading, the latest test scores reveal that approximately 25% of students in eighth grade perform below a basic level in reading. The majority of students in eighth grade are at or above uh, basic or proficient level, and only 4% are at an advanced level of reading. With such statistics, educators and cognitive scientists are trying to find ways to improve reading comprehension. And one arm of research investigates how students may utilize visualizations to improve reading comprehension. Given your experience and practice, I would assume that you would score as a super expert reader and visualizer. 
But I'm curious to know, what do you think of this as a possible intervention or strategy that could be used in schools with our students who may be having a hard time in this area? Yeah, Susan, that's that's great. I mean, you know, honestly, it it's shocking to me to imagine that young readers would be taught or led through books without their teachers somehow prompting them to do that kind of visualization or speak about their visualizations. You know, I've I've taught a fair amount of classes over the last couple of years some of which have been to kids about reading and sometimes reading and designing. And it's just so easy to get a kid talking about what they imagine for any given situation. I mean, kids are just, what makes us special is the sort of our ability to engage with the counterfactual. I mean, it's what enables us to, to make things. It's, it's why we're the apical species on this planet is that we can posit what isn't there and so it's innate and we're born with that ability and it is exercising that ability is i would posit the most important thing we do as humans so you know my interaction with kids my own other people's in a classroom setting i just find that's the simplest thing in the world to get a kid to talk about you know how they imagined a particular scene to get them to draw it for me to engage on that level and of course it makes reading comprehension easier i mean being able to i mean there's so many learners i'm one of them who in fact really need to visualize something in order to be able to properly apprehend it and you know i just think that that would be a really great way to get some leverage there so I really do hope that our nation's educators are working on that front. And in fact, you know, despite what I said about mixing media, I do find in the classroom, especially with kids, getting them to talk about and draw things that they've been reading is just great. I mean, so fun, and it really goes a long way towards making a book important and memorable for them. So yeah, I think that's absolutely a great strategy. And I would hope it's being used. And do you think with newer media, such as virtual reality, mm -hmm. simulations, could that aid in our just basic reading skills? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's been all this work on OBE, which I think is interesting out of body experience, where you can actually stimulate your angular gyrus such that, you know, by using VR, you can force people to have out of body experiences, which I think is a very interesting thing. Because I think, in a way, it shows us that there is there is a part of our cognitive functioning, there's part of our, the functioning of our brains that actually is constantly constructing models of reality. And in those models, we are embodied. And mm -hmm. that that embodiment, in a way, is a construct. And so there is an actual way to tweak the mechanism such that you are all of a sudden looking at yourself in the third person. And I, that's absolutely fascinating in that it destabilizes our notion of self. You know, personally, you know, my bent is always to sort of poke a stick at some sacred assumption. And so the idea that that we are these well-founded selves, I always find to be a little bit spurious. So the fact that neuroscience is finding is sort of uh, finding out some of the ways in which that is a construct, I think that's that's great. And also it just points again towards what you know, the things that reading does for us very naturally. It does destabilize our egos and our sense of self. It allows us to 
live other lives. And I think the ethical implications of that are also fascinating. We're living in a particularly dark moment right now where the idea of empathy is, has been sort of mm. shunted to the side. And this would be a great moment, I think, for all of us to try to imagine what it's like to be someone else, be it someone in a different country, someone of different economic circumstances. You know, I think there is something about reading fiction that should promote a kind of empathy. Given that this podcast covers media effects broadly, but there was an interesting story you shared about one of the covers you worked on or a series of covers with Calvino. And I want you to talk about it, obviously, but it was a great example of how media hasn't changed in part, perhaps the way you and others may be designing jackets, not necessarily for the consumer who is going to go to the bookstore, but how we now look at covers online through Amazon. And so if you could first share that story and then maybe talk a little bit about or a lot about how you see this affecting the jacket design industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the amazing opportunity to design, I think it's 23 covers for the sort of the complete works of the great 20th century Italian writer and publisher Italo Calvino. And the way that project came about was that one day I was at my office and checking my email and I saw the name Calvino in the from column of my, of my email. And it was an email from his daughter, Giovanna, who had said that her father's work had rather notoriously had, you know, he'd never had good covers for his books, which is a travesty if you've read him because his writing is so deeply committed to the visual. He just has such an unbelievably fecund imagination. And, you know, of course, I, I jumped at the opportunity. There's this very difficult problem with Calvino, which is how do you make covers that represent books that are about making books? You know, there's just, there's, there's so many <laughs> wheels within wheels. I mean, it's a pretty tricky thing to do. And initially I had had this idea, which I actually thought was really perfect. I still think is actually really perfect, which was to actually write descriptions of covers that would be written out on the covers of the books themselves. So, you know, any given novel, it would the cover would be text only, and it would say the cover of this novel looks like X, Y, and Z, which was just the most Calvino-esque idea imaginable. And so I wrote all of these covers for a bunch of his books. And I don't think I've ever had a better idea for a hmm. book jacket mm -hmm. in my life. And ultimately, it was sort of decided within the quarters of publishing that, quote unquote, these would not look good on Amazon. Mm. Um, so, you know, back to the drawing board and, you know, me and in this case, I worked on these with a very close friend of mine, the designer Oliver Monday. He and I decided that we would make these very colorful paintings and drawings for these covers where each one would be a sort of subtle duple entendre of some kind or other. And those worked great, and I'm really happy with the way they turned out. But it was just interesting that this was one of the, it felt like a kind of crossroads moment for me because I really feel like I had nailed the brief. But in fact, the platform ended up kind of limiting what the possibilities were for the actual designs. And what um, did they say exactly that the consumer might not be as interested or taken well, by the cover that's purely text-based? Yes, and, you know, there's there's a size component here, right, mm. which is that most covers seen on digital platforms are thumbnails. So mm -hmm. 
they theoretically need to transmit the same way at a very small size as they do at the size of the actual book. This is a new consideration, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about all of that. There's part of me, you know, there's an old design adage that my old cohort Chip Kidolfs used to bring up, which is that any good design should work well at any size. It should be scalable. And I think there's some truth to that. In fact, when I'm making a design, you know, irrespective of the platform that's being sold on, sometimes I'll shrink it down or blow it up just to see what it looks like, because it's helpful sometimes to just get a sense of the composition that way. But, you know, I will say that Amazon is obviously the one bajillion pound gorilla in the room in terms of book sales. And, you know, they, they're very good at what they do, but they're not very consumer friendly in a number of ways. And one of them is just the, I, I think this idea of a warehouse of thumbnail JPEGs is very off putting. I mean, hmm. um, one of the reasons that an independent bookstore works as a construct is that it is limited in terms of space. And what that means is that they can only hold so much. And what that means is that, you know, judicious choices need to be made by the book buyer about what they're going to have in that shop, right? So a book buyer will curate an experience for a, the browser. They will collect, a, you know, a certain amount of books that doesn't feel overwhelming, but feels like there's a lot of choice, right? It's that sort of sweet spot in a good independent bookstore. You feel like there's, you know, wow, there's so much I could buy here, but it doesn't feel overwhelming. Now, Amazon uses the model of we have everything, you know, and they, they make these little nods towards sort of the curatorial impulse, but they don't, it doesn't really work that well in that medium. I find, I find it very overwhelming on Amazon. It's not a good browsing medium is what I'm saying. So, you know, I actually do most of my shopping in physical brick and mortar, you know, independent bookstores for, for that reason. I, I find it a little disturbing that the sort of construction of the book itself as a physical object is now beholden to these sort of not necessarily well thought out platforms. So yeah, I do find that a little bit disturbing. Um, you know, the good thing is that the trends seem to point at the fact that we're, you know, we really have not abandoned the physical book. In fact, we're reading more P books as they obnoxiously call them in the industry more than we're reading ebooks, which is, um, which I think is really great. <laughs> uh, you know, my commitments are very much to the physical <laughs> book. Mm -hmm. You know, I read both electronically and physically, and they both, uh, both forms have things to recommend them, I think. But I, I think the book as object is a, is a very important artifact to have and maintain. And, you know, there are things that physical books can do that electronic books can't do. And it's a pretty perfect design, the physical book. I mean, it solves a lot of problems in a very, very elegant way. And I, I think still, you know, we, we have not solved the problem of, you know, well, how do you give an ebook to somebody? Um, and once you're done reading an ebook, does it still perform the same function as a kind of souvenir of a reading experience, kind of trophy of a reading experience? that a physical book does? Does it transmit in the way a physical book does? What kind of reader you are? Does it become that sort of palpable sort of remainder of the reading experience that a physical book is? You know, I think the geography of electronic books is a little hard to understand, you know, in a way, 
when I'm reading an electronic book. On the one hand, the search function is fabulous. It's extremely useful. On the other hand, I always feel like I'm at sea a little bit. You know, I don't really, I'm on a page and I'm reading it, but I don't know really where I am in the book in the same sense that I do when I'm reading a physical book. You know, I can't stick my finger in one place and flip yeah. quickly to that and back. I mean, a physical book really, you really know where you are in the book at all times. And I, I really don't feel like the ebook has really solved that particularly well. I guess there are studies that show that retention is not as good with ebooks. And I think probably it has something to do with that, in fact, that. You know, in this model building that we were talking mm -hmm. about, I think the geography of the book is important. Where in the narrative are you at any given moment? That helps you not just to navigate the narrative, but also to remember it, that, that it has a kind of physical arc to it, right? Mm -hmm. Not to mention that the cover and all the sort of paratextual stuff also play into what makes a reading experience. I guess in the long run, you know, I think we ended up making covers that really work for Calvino's books and also do in fact work on amazon but I, I you know it was a little bit of a chilling moment to realize that what might be sort of the perfect solution for a book in the irl in the meat space in the real world may not in fact be um, a ideal solution for um, this particular vendor speaking of ebooks and the kindle have you played around with the kindle and motion is that what it's called the kindle with motion i don't know i haven't actually i mean like i said i do a lot of ebook reading but i do it on an ipad mm -hmm. so you know i played around with the kindle a little bit but it's been a while i mean mm -hmm. one of the things i liked about the old kindle was yeah. that it was it seemed like it was the anti-multimedia device i mean it was just in the early days I mean, I wonder if you can still buy these, but they, you know, they used to have these black and white screens and that there were these physical buttons and it was sort of like this, almost like Soviet era, Eastern European trabant <laughs> of the reading device. And what that meant is that all you were engaging with was text. And there was something right. that was so great right. about that. And some of my fears were about the idea that mm -hmm. publishers would all of a sudden want to embed video and, and audio. And I mean, perhaps the Shakespeare of the multimedia novel has yet to be born and will be born and we will experience that but it just seems like the idea of having other media encroach on that wonderfully unified experience of reader and text feels a little off-putting to me so no i guess that what i'm yeah. saying is i haven't seen it but i'm very curious tell me what is it what does it do i have yet to play with it myself oh, okay but i've seen little video snippets of it mm -hmm. online and Again, with Harry Potter, mm. the owl oh. shakes a little bit or oh. flip, you know, flies across the page. Oh, right. And um, <laughs> it, it's just interesting to me that there's more of this visual given to the reader mm -hmm. and yeah. what that might be in the future. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I do remember yeah. there was an app in the early days of the iPad that was an Alice in Wonderland that had sort of a variety of animations and interactivities and it was really beautifully made although i remember that experience also not being as rich as the experience of just reading my old black and white paperback so again i'm i'm, I'm a little hesitant to be the luddite here however and i'm not honestly i'm really a very early adopter when it comes to tech generally speaking but i just feel like there's certain experiences that are impoverished sometimes when we just try to add and we try to layer and we try to we try to sort of gild the lily as it were we try to make an experience that's already pretty perfect better thereby making it worse it's good to know when to stop as mm -hmm. a culture you know yeah. 
it's good to, it's good to know when we've done something well and move on to something else and i feel like the book in a way is pretty is pretty perfect again with the caveat that maybe someone is out there who can somehow bring all those media together in the absolutely perfect ingenious way and you know maybe that's possible i you know i w- i would be the first person that would enjoy that if it can be done without feeling like you're constantly being jarred out of one media into another. Okay. Well, thank you so much, so much to think about. And I really appreciate your time and sharing all your thoughts. Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure talking to you. you.